transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledge on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, brother. Inside of the announcement sheet, you'll find an outline that you can use to follow along in this uh, year-long study of the Bible we're calling Holy Words. And uh, we're looking at the prophets right now, uh, Micah this morning, Nahum tonight. And uh, before we get into that study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we come to you in this moment with with so many different kinds of needs. Some of us, Father, are ecstatic because of the greatness of the week that we've had. Uh, Others of us, Father, have had uh, other things that have made uh, a mountain of distractions for us to wade through just to focus on you as we come together on the first day of the week to worship. And yet others of us, Father, have gone through a week and there has been loss or disappointment or frustration or the reminder of a failure or some kind of a horrific loss, Father, that has has brought us to our knees. And it's our prayer, Father, that You will demonstrate Your great grace to each of us. And that in this moment, Father, your, Your great power in Your Word will speak to each of us where we are in such a way that we are drawn to You and strengthened and increased in our faith in such a way, Father, that You are so incredibly, incredibly honored and blessed by Your church. We pray to go out from this place as light today and to embody the words of this ancient prophet in such a way, Father, that that, that people somehow see in our words and our actions the Gospel. And we ask all of this, Father, with all of our heart, in the name of Jesus. And all the church said, Amen. We're going to be looking at Micah this morning. And one of the things that uh, I'm hoping that we're beginning to see as we go through the prophets week after week, we're kind of in that section of the Old Testament now in the study of holy words, is that the prophets are not uh, a part of the Bible that you can ignore because it doesn't seem very relevant. The prophets are extremely relevant. The prophets are not just some kind of an irregular appendage that is attached to the Old Testament. But as we've gone through them, the truth of the statement that we use at the beginning of these sermons, I hope all of that comes shining through like a, a great light, that the Bible is not a collection of random stories or random writings or random prophecies, but it's one story about God, about man, about what went wrong and what God is doing to put it back together again. One of the definitions for the word drive is is to guide or to direct to a place. When I drive my truck, I guide it or I'm directing it to a street or to an address or to a building or someplace, and we get there. When I drive a nail with a hammer into a piece of wood, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm using that hammer to direct that nail on my finger as well to drive that, that nail into the piece of wood to the place where I want it to, to be fixed. When I'm out there, uh, you know, at the driving range and I drive a golf ball, 
it goes wherever it wants to go. (laughs) Well, maybe that's not the best illustration, but in a manner of speaking, that is what the prophets are doing. That's one of the things that Micah is doing. He is, God is using this prophet and Isaiah and all of the others to guide or to drive or to cajole or to encourage or to push the people back into the path of righteousness and back into a faithful, worshipful relationship with Him. Micah is no different. Now, a little bit of background. Micah is a contemporary to Isaiah that we talked about and looked at last week, Sunday morning and Sunday night. Uh, His ministry, I believe, has three phases. The first At the very beginning, there is the extensive idolatry. There is the problem of the Baal and the Ashram and and, uh, and all of the idolatry in Judah, which led to an unacceptable worship of God during the reign of Ahaz and during the very, very early years of Hezekiah. But as you know, Hezekiah turns things around, which brings to the second phase of Micah's ministry. There are some successes at the revival that comes because of the reform that Hezekiah brings. And so Micah begins his ministry kind of in a low place with all of the idolatry as Hezekiah begins to bring to bear his reforms and revival into, into South Judah. It begins to climb a little bit. But by the time you get to the end of Micah, you find it beginning to dip again as the idolatry and the Baalism, all of those... All of those reforms during the time of Hezekiah have been reversed now during the reign of Manasseh. And Micah has, uh, at that low point of, of South Judah's spiritual history, he has sort of this summary statement on the culture in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Micah says, Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? Should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. I don't know what he's talking about in in specific, specific detail there, but it is not great. The Jewish culture at this time is really beginning to unravel. There is uh, the sense that there, there are sorcerers that have come into the land. There's fortune telling. You, you see that in chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. But if you're a poor person, going to the court and trying to find some justice in Israel during this period of time was like going into the butcher shop, except you weren't going in through the front door for a purchase. You were going through the back door as a product. And God sees all of this that is happening and will bring destruction upon the land and its people. In fact, in chapter 1 and chapter 3, Micah is the very first of the prophets to actually say there's going to be a destruction of Jerusalem. And to try to revert Israel back to faithfulness in God and to keep them there, there is kind of a three-phase or a three-fold methodology that Micah uses. The first is, hear the future reality. And then secondly, hear the human retort. And then thirdly, hear the divine response. So it's a reality, a future reality. There is a a human retort and hear the divine response. First, in his methodology, that future reality. Now sometimes, if you're like me, you don't always have an accurate read on your own situation until you see it contrasted with somebody else. You go to the gym and you think that you're doing pretty well. You can do a lot of push-ups, you can do a lot of sit-ups, you can lift a lot of weight until you see that guy next to you. It's the same thing with the Treasury Department. Uh, The Treasury Department does not spend a lot of time and effort teaching people how to identify counterfeit bills. What they spend a lot of time and resources is helping these people, these counterfeit tracers, to see what a true 
bona fide, genuine US of A $100 Benjamin looks like, to get intimately acquainted with it so that when they do see that counterfeit, they, they see it immediately. Now, this is one of the strategies, one of the pieces of methodology that Micah is going to use to help the people to see where they are right now and how different it is from God's future. And so in chapter 4, he reveals what the future kingdom of God is going to look like. Beginning in verse 1, he says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple, some of your translations may have the word house, will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His way so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. And then this very famous passage you find it in other prophets as well. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. It sounds glorious. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. The phrase, uh, the mountain of the Lord's temple, the mountain of the house of the Lord, or the mountain of the Lord is very curious. I, you do see this phrase in a lot of places in the Old Testament. You see it in the Psalms. You see it in Zechariah. You see it in Isaiah. Twice in the book of Micah, you see that phrase, the mountain of the Lord. The question is, what does it mean? The mountain of the Lord. Well, most of us have, have seen mountains and been on top of them, been around them. Mountains form geographical boundaries and natural boundaries. I mean, you know if you're on a mountain or not. Nobody kind of accidentally walks into a mountain. You see it from afar. You, it, it rises up and you can't miss the mountain. And because of the greatness and the grandeur of the mountain, the unchanging appearance of the mountains gives them a, a measure of solidity and permanence. The mountains are not going to go away. It's the appearance of everlasting. It's formidable. It's great. The mountain is undefeatable. Uh, years ago, and, and don't ask me to explain it, I used to read a lot of Emily Dickinson. Go figure. And she uh, wrote a poem, uh, actually a very beautiful poem, uh, called Ah, Tenerife, which is about a mountain in Victoria, Australia, where, where she describes this mountain in, in, the, in the metaphors and, and the images of strength for her day, which in, in her romantic mind and idealistic mind would have been you know, the Knights of the Round Table. And so there's a lot of armor imagery in the description of this mountain. But she describes this Mount Tenerife as still, as, as clad in mail, the, you know, the armor of the mail, the, in mail of Isis. Thigh of granite. She uses the word thu, which is an old English word that means muscular strength. Thu of steel. And at the end of the poem she says, because of the greatness of this mountain, I'm kneeling still. The greatness of a mountain. They are what you see in the distance and in the future. When you travel, the mountain is up ahead. It's down the road. The mountains are high and lifted up. And in the Bible, the mountain is a place where you have divine experiences. You have experiences with God. And the mountain becomes a metaphor for the difference between where God is and where He will be in the future and where we are. And in this text where Micah begins to describe what the mountain of the Lord is going to look like, 
He says, God's mountain will be that place that all kinds of people will stream into it. And as they stream into it, it's obvious that God's ways are going to be known, that people will live in accordance with the will of God. And they'll do that successfully and faithfully because that's the way they desire to live. And because God's will and God's Word and obedience to God is at a premium, it's God's wisdom that is going to prevail through all of those hearts. And although there are many people groups on that mountain, they are going to be at peace. That great text out of Micah 4, they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Do you know what June 28th yesterday was? The centennial to the day, a hundred years ago, World War I started. And as many historians call it, the entrance of, of the world into the modern age. We began to kill people at unprecedented rates. Not so on the mountain of the Lord. It's, it's a beautiful picture of what human existence is going to be like in the future with God and with each other. What it's going to look like. What it's going to feel like. How it's, how it's going to come to pass. Which leads then to the human retort. Now you know what a retort is. A retort is a response to something that's said. But it, it's not just a response. It's, a retort is, a, is a, a, a response with an attitude. Sometimes there's sarcasm. Sometimes there's just a lot, of, a lot of meanness with it. But if you've ever done any reading of Churchill or know anything about Churchill, Winston Churchill was a master of the retort. A couple of examples. Uh, if you've read uh, The Life of Churchill, you know that he had kind of a running verbal battle with Lady Nancy Astor, who was an American but living in England during uh, World War II in those early years of the, the 20th century. She and Churchill did not get along at all. And one time she said to Churchill, if I were married to you, I'd put poison in your coffee. And Churchill said, Nancy, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> George Bernard Shaw was kind of a curmudgeon, a, a famous playwright. Uh, once he, he sent a note to Churchill uh, when he was uh, having a, a play premiered in England, in London. And he, he wrote to Churchill, I'm reserving two tickets for you for my premiere. Come and bring a friend. If you have one. Churchill responded, Impossible to be present for the first uh, performance. We'll attend the second if there is one. <laughs> From Micah chapter 4, in this great picture of the mountain of the Lord, we go to Micah chapter 6, which is a court scene. God has taken Israel, has taken Judah, South Judah, to court. And He's calling witnesses and, and, he's, and he's making charges against Judah because of the way that they're living contra His will. And the injustice and the oppression and the idolatry that is in the land. And in Micah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, you get kind of a feel that this is, this is not going to be a very, very nice or pleasant court experience. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains of the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a what? A case against His people. He is lodging a what? A charge against Israel. Now here comes the human retort in verses 6 and 7. And what as I read this, listen very carefully to the tone and to the exaggeration that's in these words. As Israel, South Judah, is responding to the fact that God is, has a case and a charge against them and is bringing them to this cosmic courtroom. In verse 6, the people respond... With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? 
Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Well, at first glance, it sounds pretty impressive. Sounds like, you know, the people somewhat are taking seriously what it is that God is, is lodging as a charge against them. It's an impressive list. Year-old calves, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil, the firstborn, the, 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 the fruit of, 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 of my body for the sin of my soul. It sounds so impressive. Until you think about what's not there. The heart. Or worship, or adoration, or faithfulness, or righteousness. Or obedience to the will of God. Now they're saying, what do you want? 10,000 rivers of oil? What do you, what do you want? 1,000 a a thousand rams? What do you want? You want the firstborn? You want the, the firstborn of my body for the, the sin of my soul? Is that what you want? Here comes the divine response. Last phase. Verse 8. One verse. Very simple. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. Now, that's past tense. He has, he's not showing you. He has shown you. Which means that the information He's about to give them is based on something He's given to them in the past. This is not something that they're, they're ignorant about. It's not something that they've never been taught or even information that, that is coming to them for the first time. It's, it's old stuff. He says, He has shown you. O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? Three things to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's say that last verse together. To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This verse summarizes the life that God desires of His people. And notice the progression. It is to do justice, it is to love kindness, and it is to walk humbly with God. Now, the first core requirement of people that are going to be pleasing to God is to do justice. And this, this word justice is the word in Hebrew, mishpat. It's a very common word in the Old Testament. Very common biblical word. It shows up hundreds of times in the Old Testament. The definition of this word is to do what is right or to do what is righteous or to do what is fair to other people. To live justly is to reject what is unjust or to reject injustice in the land or in relationships. Now, to think about justice or mishpat in the biblical way, you have to think about it sort of as a coin with two sides. The, the first side to this coin is kind of a negative side. And it's to judge and to punish a person for their unlawful actions. It is very just. It is to act justly for a person to be judged and punished for some wrong deeds. He commits a murder. He, he, there's a holdup at a bank. He slanders somebody. He mugs somebody. He lies about somebody. He steals something. Something is wrong in that culture when those that do those kinds of things are allowed just to keep going on and on. It becomes more and more rampant. And there is no justice because none of it is being stopped. So the one side of that coin is to judge and to punish a person for their unlawful actions. But the flip side of that coin is positive. It's, it's kind of a multidimensional word. There's a positive sense in which the word means to protect, to take care of, to, to lift up the vulnerable. And the Bible describes four different kinds of people, especially in the Old Testament, that, that need this kind of justice. It's the poor, it's the widow, it's the orphans, it's the aliens. By the time you get to the New Testament, it's the sick and those that are in prison. It's to stand beside and to be with people who cannot stand for themselves 
Because they have no power. They have no means. They have no resources. And, and to do that kind of justice is for... I mean, this is the kind of thing that is to emanate from the people of God and, what, and a part of what it means to create a kingdom culture or to bring about, to see a shadow of the mountain of the house of the God that's going to be a reality in the future. To act that way, that justly, is to bring a kingdom culture into the community. And Mike is not the only one to talk about it. Amos chapter 5, verse 24, a famous verse, even in the history of our own nation, because of Martin Luther King Jr. Let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. One of the most uh, uh, prevalent examples of what justice and how to do justice in the Bible is Psalm 146, beginning in verse 6. Begins by identifying who God is. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. That is a translation of the word mishpat. He does justice by giving food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but He frustrates the ways of the wicked. You find the same language in Isaiah. So the first thing that God is saying to, to South Judah about getting their life right with Him was not to give 10,000 rivers of olive oil or 1,000 rams. Hey, just do justice the way that it's always been described to you in Scripture and by my own lips. But then the second is to love kindness. In other words, it is to love the Hebrew word chesed. To be in the middle of the stream of God's unfailing love and devotion and commitment to His people. Now, one of the Old Testament scholars, a fellow by the name of Bruce Waltke, very, very good. He thinks that this is to show covenant love to someone who is powerless before you or in a weaker position due to a misfortune. I think he's right, but I don't think he takes it far enough. I think you go further with this. Chesed is a word that only describes God and how it is that He relates to us, His people. And, and when you love chesed or love kindness, you, you, whether it's a spouse or a child or a pet or a song or a poem or a painting, the reason you love it is because you see its worth as being like no other that you've experienced. When you see God's mercy that has come to you, and I mean you really see it and you experience it, and, and, you're, and you're, you're swimming in it and you see it like no other. Or grace, God's gift to you. You see it like no other. Or His compassion to you that is like no other. Or, or his, his, his will to you that is like no other. Then that changes you and transforms you and creates love in you. This, this kind of kindness in you. And you become a proponent of justice wherever you are. Because you realize that the creator of the entire universe, the heavens and the earth, in whom to stand in His presence is to be burned to a crisp, to die at seeing His very presence, to know that that being loves you and saves you and draws you to Himself even though you are in no position, even though you are weak, even though you are, 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 are dirty with sin, He has brought you into His holy embrace because of love transforms you and makes you do justice.
And that is the product of walking humbly with God, which is the third component. To walk humbly with God. When, when you walk humbly with God, it means that, that you have a, a recognition of who God is. That there is no place for arrogance. There's no place for pride. There's no place for human hubris in the presence of God. That, that same spirit, that same attitude, that same way of thinking that was able to, to attempt to build the Tower of Babel so that we could get mano a mano, eye to eye, face to face with God, to get into God's face. That when you're walking with God, that there's no place for that kind of spirit, that kind of attitude. And to say that you're walking with God is not just to say, hey, I'm out taking a walk and God just had... You know, a couple of years ago, I was out walking the dog and this guy in the neighborhood who walked at the same time. We never walked together. We just happened to be going in the same direction at the same time. He says, hey, you want to walk with me? I said, sure. So we went his route. That's not what it means in, in the Middle Eastern culture to walk with anybody. It says that you walk with that person, you're in agreement. That this is a way of life. That this is a way that you conduct yourself. That this is about a profound relationship. It's about more than just going in the same direction. It's about a walk in relationship with that person. To walk humbly with God means you have a profound, significant relationship with Him that changes you because you come into contact with His loving kindness, His grace, and His love. And the more that that's poured into your life, the more it transforms you and changes you where you want to spread it to everybody else around you. And you care for the poor and the alien and the stranger, the orphan and the widow. And Mike is saying it's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. You know, when Jesus was here, he taught his disciples to love those who can't love them back. He says, if you love somebody that can love you back, I mean, what more are you doing than a tax collector? They get that. They're money people. They know that there should be a return on the investment. That loving somebody as an investment and seeking a return is not the way that the people of God love people. It was said of Jesus in fulfillment of Isaiah 42, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. And over in Luke chapter 4, right after uh, Jesus is baptized and begins his ministry, he goes back to Nazareth. Uh, we find this text also in, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 18, where he goes to Nazareth and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. He's sitting in the seat of Moses. They hand him the scroll and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim a year of the Lord's favor. Same kinds of things that Micah is talking about. Good news to the poor. Freedom for prisoners wrongly jailed. Sight for the blind. And a thing that I never really saw until this week, freedom for the oppressed, and then he stops there. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 61, one of the things that you see is he stops right before you get to the words that talk about and the vengeance of the Lord. It's interesting that he stops just short of quoting that part of Isaiah 61 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Because he came to fulfill that one side of justice now. What he did when he was born in Bethlehem and lived in Nazareth and moved to Capernaum and lived for 33 years, he came to fulfill one side of justice now. He came to minister to the powerless, all of us. 
And He did justice by not just standing beside us or standing with us, but standing in for us at the cross. And when people in Micah chapter 6 ask, what do you want, God? Do you want the firstborn of my, my, you know, the fruit of my, my, my body to pay for the sin of my soul? God says, that's not necessary. I'll give my firstborn. I'll give my firstborn. In order that, when He comes a second time, you won't have to face the flip side of that coin, which is judgment. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. You know, one of the amazing things about the prophets is that they drive us to the message of the Gospel. That at some point in this life, as you're going along, even if you don't really know all that much about the Bible, all that much about Scripture, you realize that there's got to be more to life than this. That your life seems to be careening and uh, caroming off in all of these different directions, and a lot of it is destructive, and a lot of it is generating sadness and, and, and devastation. And not only for your own life, but for a lot of people around you. And what are you going to do? Except trust the one that the prophets point us to. Trust the one that those four Gospels point us to. That all of those letters of Paul point us to. That the entire Bible points us to. That there was one who came and because of love and because of grace and because of chesed, loving kindness, the high pitch of devotion for humanity took all of our sins upon Him in order for us not to face that judgment, but to find ourselves, because of His righteousness being put on us, to find ourselves forever and eternally in the embrace of God. To have our sins in this life washed away through baptism. For, for God to put His Spirit inside of us so that we not only are transformed into the likeness of Christ, but that we can persevere and see Him at the end of time. Knowing that He's not just Lord, that we confess right now, but He's one that we confess as Lord for all of eternity. And if there are ways that our church can help you encounter the justice of God through the Gospel and the death and the cross of Jesus, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. They'd love to spend some time talking to you about that. We want you to come down and talk to them as we rise and praise God together. Let's stand and sing.